0: Hey folks, Shack Spirico here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life When times get tough. Or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 500. 500. And uh, we're not doing any kind of really special episode today, um, but I will be talking about the fact that we've come 500 episodes together um, as we go into the show and the main topic. Uh, The main topic of the show today is really a bunch of topics, because it's Monday. So on Mondays, it's become a tradition that I take your questions and comments by email. And I know that the question shows are not the shows that everybody likes, but I try to do something for everybody. And I try to keep it varied. And, you know, when we do a show like this, it's your show, because it's your questions. Those of you who have sent me questions and haven't heard them on the air, please understand the volume of my email. Um, I've gotten to a point now where if I see an email that I know is a good candidate for the show, as soon as I look at them, I'm like, I want to screen that one out. I have two folders. I have like a backup folder and I have a queued-up folder. And I drop stuff during the week into the queued-up folder. And then on Monday, I figure I'll get in there. It'll be five or six, and I'll go to the backup folder and pull out another five or six, and we'll have a show. You know what? Uh, the queued-up folder, uh, over two weeks, because I was gone for a week, has over 30 emails in it that were instant, yeah, I want to do this. And that tells you something about how great you guys are, but also tells you the struggle that I have with trying to get everybody's stuff on the air. So that's why you may not have heard yourself. I'm gonna, you know, eight ten people will hear themselves today. Uh, I'll, I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying to bring stuff on the air and uh, keep trying to respond to your suggestions for shows. It's really important to me that I do a good job for you. And giving you what you ask for is is a paramount thing for me. Before we go into today's show, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Item one, like always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is MERS radio and uh, MERS-radio.com, actually. That's M-U-R-S, a dash, and then radio, and then a dot com. Is uh, always, the best way to find our sponsors and make sure you're dealing with official sponsors, go to the podcast.com, click on their banner. MERS radio <clears throat> is a technology that I never thought I needed and now I never want to do without. I have motion detectors around my property that are tied into a base station and when somebody or something is moving around in those certain areas I get an immediate alert. If the cellular network is out, if the uh landline phones are out and if my family needs to communicate for up to about 2 miles around our property, we can do that with our handheld radios. It uh is really convenient. It's like ha Consider it like an intercom system for your property, right, so that you have the ability to communicate with everybody in your household, a few handhelds, and a base station. The base station's cool. stays inside the house, gets plugged in in a central location in the home. I've even used it, like, if I'm upstairs, I'll pick up the handheld, I keep charged upstairs, and if I need my wife for something, I'll just pinger on that like it's an intercom system in the home yet we have that you know one to two mile range and we have the motion detectors. so we have security secondary communications all put together that's really cool next up today is Berkey guy with Berkey light water filter systems folks I'm gonna you know here's the thing with water if you don't have it you die we talk a lot about a lot of things that improve our comfort around here but water is essential here's the other thing about water It's up to you whether you feel this way or not. And I understand people that are on both sides of this fence. I do not feel good about drinking the water that comes out of a city water system today. I do not like the the, the, the fact that these people put um, fluoride in the water. And I'm not a freak that says it's a eugenics program to get rid of us all. Oh, we're all going to die. But I do find it to be a toxic substance. I don't think it belongs there, and I know for a fact, through my research, that it's a cumulative toxin. So at a minimum, on a day-to-day basis, I want that out of my water. I absolutely want that out of my water. Berkey Light Water Filter Systems are the best systems that I know of for day-to-day use for making your water good and safe to drink. They're very cost-effective. Uh, They're not cheap, but anything that costs money, you know, it costs a lot of money once and a little money ongoing to replace your filters. I think it's worth every penny of it. The quality is exceptional, and the Berkey guy is outstanding at making sure he gets you what you need and what you want. He's a wonderful guy. Every bit of feedback has been wonderful about him. He's been a strong supporter of the show for over a year. If you need a water filtration system, give him a shot at your business. That's all the guy's ever told me he wants from a customer is the opportunity to earn their business. And uh, we need entrepreneurs like that in America today more than ever with some of the economic conditions this country's going into. Next up, make sure you connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. I need your help, folks. I am trying to crush Brian Black in our little contest to who gets more Facebook likes on their fan page for this month. Um, We are killing him by about 580-some-odd people, and we started out in the hole about 250. So we've bashed him pretty good. Um, But he started this, and uh, he's the one that threw the bet down, and he's one of my best friends. I want you to understand that. Uh, But we do have a bet that involves doing 100 push-ups and buying dinner. And I don't want him to just do the push-ups and buy dinner. I want him to know that he picked the wrong fight. Uh, I say that all in good, in good fun. In fact, folks, I'm going to ask you guys um, on September 1st, if you've liked my page, to then turn around and like his after we win. After we win. But please do that for me if you haven't yet. If you have a Facebook account, just go to the Survival Podcast. And right up at the top, you'll see a, a button you can click for liking us on Facebook. You don't even have to go to Facebook. All right. Uh, With that, let's uh, go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, uh, which is your feedback. But before we do that, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that this is the 500th episode. I want to tell you a little bit about what I was doing this weekend. If you follow me on Twitter... And unfortunately, because I screwed up, if you're my friend on Facebook, some of my tweets ended up going to my Facebook update status, not the survival podcast one, my personal one. Uh, that was unintentional and me not understanding a new iPhone application. But if you follow me on Twitter, instead of a bunch of survival stuff and you know something I'm working on or being out in the garden or something like that on Twitter this weekend, you saw a bunch of computer nerd stuff going on. And that's because I went to a thing called Open Camp. And I went to this show... And, uh, I used to be really known in this technological, uh, you know, marketing, internet world. And I've kind of pulled myself out of that for longer than we've been doing the show. So that's about two and a half years. And a lot of people there are new. And I, I was in th- this room as just anybody else and talking to people. And it turned out a few people actually did listen to my show. They said, I was wearing one of my shirts and they saw the Survival Podcast. Said, oh, you're like, are you that guy or you just listen to his show? I'm like, no, nah, that's me. Uh, so that was kind of cool. But what, here's, what I, here's what I got out of the whole thing. There are so many people right now trying to figure out how they can make something valuable that will produce a lifestyle for them, a, an income, let them do what they love, let them follow their passion, struggling, struggling to do something similar to what I've done here with TSP. Good people with some brilliant ideas and some really smart people. And I was asked by quite a few of them what's really made your show. When you cut it all down, what's really made your show successful? And my word, or my my answer is two words, and it is the audience, the audience. And on this 500th episode, if you've never heard me pause and tell you how much you mean to me, I wanted to do that before I even started taking your questions. I didn't want to do it at the end as a you know kind of like an obligation. I wanted right up front to tell you guys that without you, I know I wouldn't have what I do. And I know sometimes you guys might ask me a question I've had like 50 times about credit cards, and I might seem kind of harsh on my answer. Uh, or there's times where I get really mad about something and it's not your cup of tea. Or there's sometimes when I talk about... But look, I do this show for you. And that means that I do it for the other, you know, 13,999 tuning in today and you. And because I have to take care of everybody, sometimes there'll be things that are not perfect for you. But it doesn't mean that you don't count. It doesn't mean that you're not important to me. If you send me an email and I haven't answered you, it's probably ended up in my trash folder or something like that. I try to answer every email with a caveat. If you send me an email with question for Jack in it for a show like today, it pretty much gets filtered right away. And I don't really respond to those directly. But when you send me a personal email, I always try to answer that. So if you've been wondering about the other side of that, I don't automate my email response. When you send an email to jack at com, it really comes to me. It does not go to a personal assistant who screens it for me. Um, I do use Outlook filtering for trash messages just because there's such a volume of it. But other than that, there's no spam filters or anything. I really try to to make you guys know how much you mean to me. And thank you for letting me live my dream. With that, let's go ahead and take one of your questions for today. And again, one more time, thank you, all of you, for making this possible, for making the show possible. Okay, the first one up today is from not a person but about 100 of you. And there's something I wanted to – I wrote about this on Friday afternoon, and it's been out on the blog, but I wanted to say it on the show because I know a lot of people don't ever go to the site or don't go to the site often. You just get the show on iTunes or whatever. And this is an important one and uh, but it's also important that we understand it there was was a key here and you'll understand how right the facts i gave were when you understand that it became was right after i made the post um there was a big rumor going around on the internet with a lot of gun sites and really i think being overhyped by the nra and i'm a lifetime member of the nra but sometimes these guys chat my ass and in this case they did that there was an environmental group uh lobbying the epa to ban the use of lead in all sporting ammunition, so for .22s and and, and shotguns and everything else, Uh, specifically because lead is an environmental hazard, and when it's dropped into the environment, it can be damaging to animals and specifically birds, and it was the American Bird Society or something like that. Uh, It was basically a group of people worried about birds. And the emails that were going around were basically stating that the EPA was going to rule on this, and without any help from Congress, make it illegal to use lead ammunition components, and lead fishing sinkers, by the way, uh, on October 31st. And that once they made their decision, it would be law. That was completely wrong. Here's what was going on, if you've heard about this. This bird group did send a petition in to the EPA. And it was on regulations.gov. And if you want to send a petition into any government agency and you go through proper channels and you file everything properly with dockets, you too will end up on regulations.gov. Anybody can solicit anything on regulations.gov. That's what happened. They really wanted this. The EPA put it up on to take comment on and said we would hold it open and take comments until October 31st. It is still open for comment. Okay. The type of the docket up there was a non-rulemaking docket. If you go look at the docket, I'll link to it. You can click on more information and you'll see line 3 says docket type, non-rulemaking, which means this was never proposed legislation. This was a petition by a group to ask a government body to consider doing something, which I agree is not necessary. Important to understand, though, is a lot of the hype was saying there's no proof whatsoever that lead is bad for any of the, you know, that, that, that there's any validity here. Actually, there is. Um, lead ammunition has been shown to be quite harmful to waterfowl, but not because you're out shooting bunnies with a twenty two or you're out in a dove field shooting doves with a shotgun. It's in wetland areas. Where people are hunting ducks and geese with high volume of fire using shotgun ammunition. Of course, shotguns have lots of little pellets, and all that lead ends up in the water and ends up in the water table. It ends up very, you know, on the on the on the on the uh, on the the ground in these these marshy areas. And these ducks and geese go through there, and they just eat everything they can find, and they try to pick up grit for their crop, and they get lead in their their system, and it has been bad. And because of that, for decades. There's been steel shot only areas, and that's why we have things like tungsten ammunition and heavy shot and things like that today to try to compensate, because steel is lighter and it's, it's it can be damaging to your, your shotgun from an aesthetic standpoint, not from a functional standpoint, and since it's lighter, it's higher velocity and the lead's different, and since it's lighter, it doesn't penetrate and doesn't have as much energy, so there's more cripples with steel shot, so people have come up with these, these alternative heavy shots using things like tungsten, which are quite expensive. That's been in existence. Anybody that's a waterfowl hunter knows that's been in existence. And my view on this thing was, if we needed to add areas to be part of the protection under this, that it needed to be done under that. So if there's a wetland where people are waterfowl hunting, where that needs to be enforced, and it's not being enforced, we have existing game regulations to do that. And that was my whole analysis of this, and after I published the article and said, if you're going to write to your congressman or senator and tell them about this, let them know that if the EPA does this, it's circumvention of power, and that you don't think it should be done. And then write the EPA be professional, but don't say this is a backdoor attack on our Second Amendment rights because it's not. It's a bunch of bird huggers trying to save birds, going to an extreme. <laughs> uh, shortly after the article was published, the EPA came out with a statement saying that they uh, were leaving the docket open, but they were not going to ever try to do this because they didn't have the authority to do this and they weren't going to seek the authority to do this and this is just another example and I'll I'll link to my own article from today's uh today's uh uh, show notes so you can read the article itself this is another example of something that's wrong that we do need to say something about if we feel strongly about it but we need to be professional keep our heads and stop seeing a conspiracy in every single thing that happens bunch of bird freaks submit a request and it gets denied. That is the entire story. And all of a sudden we have people, professional people at the NRA on their radio show, saying, they're coming for your guns with this. Folks, we have to be thinking people. We have to be rational people. Every time we overplay this stuff, right, the other side uses it against you. They say, look, they're all freaks. That's not what this says. It's been done to us so many times in the last two years. And we're responsible. Please, when you get an email about Barack Obama did this, or p- former President George Bush did that, or any, and no political affiliations here at all, when you get anything that sounds sensational and weird, please do some research. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one of your questions, feedback by email. This is a good one from Ben D on buying silver. Uh, ben says, I'm looking at buying silver for the first time. Why do one ounce coins vary in price? I've seen them recently from $18.70, current listing value, up to $23. Is there a difference in purity or rarity that I should be looking for? Well, at that price point, um, rarity is not really an issue. You're, when you're looking at coins in that price point, you're looking at either U.S. Silver Eagles or any of the Various silver rounds that are out there being made by private mints and private people. Uh, AMPX has their own, you know, Sunshine Coins. People like Tea Party Silver have their own coins. Uh, you know, people like Rob Gray with the American Open Currency Standard. They don't really have their coins. They set a standard for other people to make coins that are available to use in their barter network. There's all different types of coins. As for the price points on them, There's a a couple things we have to understand about buying precious metals to really understand that we're not being ripped off sometimes when we think that we are. First thing is spot price. Spot price is not how much you and I should be paying for silver. It really isn't. It's not even necessarily how much we'll be able to sell our silver for. We always pay a premium for anything that is minted, even if it's a bar. Okay, if It's engraved and minted and verified pure. We always pay a premium for it. Think about it this way. If the price of flour and sugar and chocolate chips and milk and butter and a batch of chocolate chip cookies added up exactly to the price that I sold those chocolate chip cookies to you for, not only would I not make any money, I would lose money because I have to put labor into mixing them up and energy into baking them. So if I was making up a chocolate chip cook, cookie, I can't sell it to you for the spot price of the flour and the sugar. I have to sell it to you at a profit, okay? A coin manufacturer has to take that raw silver that he, if he buys wholesale, gets somewhere near spot, pay for the minting of that coin, the manufacturing process, the marketing, the advertising, and the distribution. So that coin sells at a premium because it's a product built with silver, not just silver that you pull out of the ground in a chunk and sell for the spot price. So that's the first one. Now why do coins vary in price? Well, why can you go to Target and buy a Wilson basketball for $18 and go over to Walmart and buy the same Wilson basketball for, let's say, sixteen fifty? Because one business is selling it for a higher price point than the other. That's the most basic reason you'll see differences in, in coin costs. If you're buying the same coin, let's say you're buying American Silver Eagles. As long as a trusted vendor that you know is actually not going to just take your money and fraud you and run away and not send your stuff. And anybody that's been in business for any length of time, they're not going to do that because they can't. you know, Or they wouldn't still be in business. You can't, you can't run an operation like that for more than about 24 hours. So anybody that's a trusted seller on eBay, uh, it's a, a recognized business, if you're buying American Silver Eagle, that's what you're getting. And the purity is based on the coin itself, not who you buy it from. So if I buy a Silver Eagle from Joe's Coin Shop in Arlington, Texas, or I buy a Silver Eagle from AMPX online, I get the same freaking coin. There's no difference. So I can choose between paying shipping online or paying sales tax locally. And I, I might as well buy the coins from whoever I can get the best deal from in that scenario, same coin. Now, another thing that's going to create variances in coins isn't really rarity, but novelty. So if you wanted to buy a Tea Party silver coin, that has a certain affinity with it, and you might pay a bit of a premium over a generic silver round made by Sh- Sunshine Minting. That's just, hey, this is just for the guy that wants coins. In the end, all of these coins are you know, getting them boggled their value from the commodity they're built out of. But you're always going to pay a premium, and it's not probably going to happen that you can buy a coin today and turn around and sell it today for what you paid for it. If you try to sell a silver coin the day you buy it, it is inevitable that you will lose some money. Because you're not a dealer, you're not going through dealer channels. The other thing you have to understand is that these dealers often take losses. If a dealer is selling coins today for $20, because the silver price is high, if he overloads his inventory and buys too much... And the silver price drops, and he has to now sell the coins for sixteen dollars because silver went down to eight bucks. So let's say it crashes, right? But he has to sell them for twelve dollars. He has to take the loss, unless somebody's willing to pay. So the coins are sold for what? The coins are also at a market value. What will you pay for them? What will everybody else like you pay for them? And anybody selling these coins will basically price them as high as they think they can get away with. And if it doesn't sell, they'll start dropping the price and stay with an acceptable, you know, profit margin and they'll get to a point where they actually move. And the market sets the price. And once they figure that out, it's generally correlated to spot. So you have a spot price of eighteen dollars and you're selling a coin that's selling for twenty two fifty and it sells at twenty two fifty. If it goes the silver spot goes to nineteen, you could probably raise it rate right to twenty three fifty and it'll still sell sell. And as it goes up higher, you could probably look at more at your your percentage of markup versus a straight dollar-for-dollar increase. And and that's just how the market works. Because, let's face it, people are willing to pay more for a pretty shiny coin with a picture of sitting bull on it than they are for kind of a a drab-looking lump of silver. So that's where your variances come in. What should you be buying? You should be buying what you like. I really believe that. I think that buying all the different silver rounds, one or two of each, and maybe a couple extra ones to give away to godchildren and nieces and nephews at Christmas instead of junk, great way to do it. Straight up investing, American Silver Eagles are probably one of the best deals out there for straight up investing. I really like the AMPX silver 10 ounce bars. Um, getting much heavier in the bars doesn't really get you much of an advantage. In 10 ounces is still a pretty divisible thing. So the the bulk of my you know large investments in silver, I guess you'd call them, are held in silver uh, 10 ounce silver bars, um, which have an advantage of costing me less per ounce since I'm really investing in the underlying value. But I have a, a lot of different uh, silver rounds and stuff, because we never know when one of them might take off, and they are limited production, right? Because the the guy selling them only mints as many as he can sell. So a failure could someday down the road be worth something. The guy only mints 500, and uh, let's say half of them get melted down during some kind of crisis, and you end up you know handing this down for your family, and you have a coin that 's a uh, hundred years old in the hand of a grandchild someday that 's in pristine condition, only two hundred and fifty exists in the world. hey, maybe it pays off down the road as legacy, but straight up investing um, divisible, easy to trade, small coins like you know one ounce rounds, good for a barter situation and, and as a stability point for your investing. Once you're going over, let's say, 50 ounces of silver and trying to build up some stockpile of it, look at bars, you'll, you'll probably get a better deal that way. Let's go ahead and take another one of your questions. Okay, here's another interesting one. Uh, Drew says, for a variety of reasons, I don't have very much room to store food at home. I was considering getting a climate-controlled storage facility to keep five-gallon buckets, bins, et cetera, food in it. What are your general thoughts on doing this? Good idea, bad idea, thanks, Drew. Um, it's a cost analysis thing. Uh, What you have to look at is, if you were to store food, let's say, like that in a garage, where you did have some space, but it's not climate controlled, how much will that reduce the storage life of your food? And you can basically look at any long-term storage food, it'll tell you. And you can pretty much draw the same percentage analogies through anything you'd put together yourself. Things like rice, uh, wheat, and things like that, vacuum-sealed, Oxygen deprived environment, as long as we're not talking 110 degree stuff like a, a car or something like that, if we're talking, you know, somewhat controlled in a garage, it's not really that adversely affected. The cooler, the better, though. So it comes down to financially does it make sense for you? Because if you put the food you're putting in the, the climate controlled environment, let's say, um, allows you to get a four year storage life, right? and keeping it wherever else, you only get a two-year storage life out of it. If you're storing enough food, that, and and you're going there and rotating it and using it over four years, that you save money by having the storage facility, and you don't just end up spending more on food anyway, then it probably makes financial sense. If you can store it in a slightly less climate-controlled environment but you have a two-year life and you rotate it through in two years, then you're probably better off that way. So it always is going to come down to economics in this situation. And then the other side of this is, with a climate-controlled storage environment, you don't have the food at home. Now, that might be a good thing if something happens to your house that's acute like a storm, but in a situation where you have a civil breakdown, now you got to get to your food. Worse, you got to get your food back to where you live. So you've got to put yourself in danger going out empty-handed and coming back with your items. So it's really up to you. You, might, I don't know, you know, you don't tell me whether it's because you're an apartment dweller or just have a small house. If you just have a small house, you might want to do, consider doing some underground caching. You do some underground storage of food. You get a very climate-controlled environment. Of course, there's a risk that it could be found, taken by somebody else, what have you, if it's not on your own property. But that would be another option. It's not a simple. It's a good idea, bad idea thing. How much money do you have? How much money are you willing to invest? How far away is the storage facility? How much food are you actually going to put in there? I would tell you this, though. Before you ever get an off-site storage facility for something like food, make sure you're totally out of space. Make sure that you have a, a, a floor space that's starting to be encroached upon, and you're taking stuff with you of a significant amount the day you rent it and you're putting it in there right away. Or you may end up paying for a 10 by 10 facility and using maybe four cubic feet of it. Uh, I've actually heard from someone that did that before. I was going to fill this thing up, and I realized that I was never going to fill it up, and I was spending money I didn't really need to be spending. So think about it from you know all of these standpoints. Uh, but if you have no other choice, and you don't feel that the food supplies you are capable of storing in your facility are sufficient, then you got to do something, and that may be the best answer. I'm sorry I can't give you one of these, you know, Jack Spirico classic, yes, do it, no, don't do it answers on here. This one's a little more complicated. If you want to follow up with me and be a little more specific about your situation uh, by email, I'll see if I can do this on a follow up show for you, and um, you know, see if I can maybe refine a little bit more. Let's go ahead and take another question. Here's one with a lot at play in it. Let's see what I can do with it. It's not an easy answer. Uh, this guy's name is John. John says, uh, thanks for your hard work been listening to your show since the beginning. Uh, Former 13 Series um, uh, service member in the Army. Thank you for your service, sir. And that's me saying it to you, even though you said it to me in the email. Um, Recently finished school, moved to Wyoming. Here's the problem. Land prices, he says, are extraordinarily high. Can't really accomplish my mission of having a few acres to work with in a garden due to high prices. Would you suggest biting the bullet, so to speak, and taking on more mortgage debt than I am comfortable with just to have the dirt? For frame of reference, the entry level land prices are around 100k for less than an acre of raw land inside the city, and at best 20k an acre for a large tract with no guarantee of easy water outside the city. Two, our household income is not above the six-figure mark. In any event, I'd appreciate any advice you can give. Um, Let me let me put it to you this way. First of all, unlike the last one where I'm like, well, I really can't say yes or no, the answer is no. You cannot buy a $100,000 piece of raw land if you make a household income of under $100,000 and then afford to build a reasonable home on top of it and still think you're going to be financially capable of dealing with your life at that point. Further, if you already tell me that you know you feel uncomfortable with the debt, you already have the answer. If you're uncomfortable with a debt, you can't afford it. Our propensity is to believe we can handle more than we can. By the time we think, ah, this might not work, we're way past where it won't work. So you already know that internally. Um, So, no, you don't buy a $100,000 piece of raw land inside this. And I I, I would like to know what city in Wyoming this is, honestly. Um, I don't know if you're not looking hard enough. I don't know if you're not looking far enough outside of where you're at. Maybe it's that you have a job even though you're out in the great wild west of Wyoming, maybe you still have a job that's tethered you to a distance restriction but these numbers don't make sense to me I know somebody from Montana or Wyoming is going to write me and talk about how much of the land is gobbled up and held publicly and how that drives up the price of it and I understand that, these numbers still still don't make sense to me Um, in fact I again, it's going to have to be that you're in, you know, maybe you're in Jackson Hole or something like that. Uh, where there's a lot of money that that comes in there and buys vacation houses and summer houses and things like that. You need, if you want an acre of land, you need to shop harder. And you need to keep shopping harder. And you need to look for something and you maybe you need to find an ugly house that's sitting on a half of an acre and make do with that. Um, I would love to tell you that, you know, just go do this and everything works itself out, but my belief is that we're in for some really hard times, and specifically with land. And, again, you must be in some boutique touristy area for land prices that have not taken the hit. I was on Sanibel Island, Florida, which is a, an incredible place, um, and even they are taking a hit on land prices. So there's something insulating that area, and I guess that's a good thing in a way if you're owning property there. But when you're a buyer, that's that's a problem. So... Shop harder, be willing to settle for less initially, be smart with your money, save it up right now. So maybe you go find a quarter acre typical suburban place for now that is easily affordable under your income level and start stockpiling money and wait. Because I think you're going to see land go on sale like we've never seen before during the second dip of this recession. How high we go before that second dip, how long that's going to take, I can't tell you right now. I don't think we're done with fake recovery yet. Gerald Salenti thinks it's tomorrow, basically, that we're heading back down the hole. We may be. I'm not sure. But one way or another, we're going to go back down, and we're going to go way down the second time. And people are going to panic, and people are going to do stupid things, and that's why we need to be prepared in a lot of different ways. But those who take the opportunity that still exists to store up wealth during this period, I told you this in 2008 and it happened. I said the whole world is about to go on sale. I'm telling you that it's going to happen even more. We're going to see people dumping land dirt cheap before we see people making land valuable. It's going to happen. And it's not going to happen everywhere, and it's not going to be uniform, and it's not going to be the same. Even on Sanibel, where people were taking hits on property, they're still selling a house that would sell here in Arlington for $120,000 for $650,000. And that's not on on the coast. That's a little bit in on the island. So there are places that are buffered, because as long as there's people with money that are willing to spend it, there's certain desirable areas in the real estate market that always have... Uh, they have a floor like any place else, but that floor is higher. It's more insured. There's people with billions that want a certain type of house is for sale for a million dollars versus 1.5. They just buy it. Somebody phones them up and goes, hey, Bob, I got another investment for you. And, and and they are those types of areas. So, again, I'm sorry I can't give you a good solution, but anybody that's ever in a situation where you're like, I don't really think I can afford this, you can't, and, and don't do it. Lots of housing stuff today. Here's an interesting uh, interesting one. Uh, it comes from John. John says, I was wondering how some of the pre-made log homes and log cabins would be for modern survivalist. How would they compare with a stick frame home in manners such as efficiency, storage space, and adaptability, etc.? Are they worth the cost? My wife and I are both Marines. Hoo-ah. Thank you for your service, both of you. And uh, when we get out in three to four years, we're looking at moving away to Idaho, Let's set up our homestead. I've always liked how the log homes look, but I was wondering if they bring any problems to the table. Assume that I'd be building the house over a basement, and if a garage is not included, I would uh, build or by a detached garage workshop. The cabin would be a vacation hunting cabin with the potential as a bug-out location. And he gives me a couple places to sell cabins. Here's a few things on them. Most cabins require maintenance. On the external logs, especially, which is some level of sealing or, or, or staining or what have you on an ongoing basis. Different logs have different periods of time that they can go. You know, there's pine logs or cedar logs and things like that. That's something you need to talk about and evaluate the cost of. But there's almost no log home that you just set it out there and for 20 years and you don't paint it, you don't touch it. It's not like brick and vinyl or brick and aluminum right there's there's ongoing maintenance and it's not a bad thing you just have to be prepared to do it um from a standpoint of efficiencies when you have a piece of wood that's a foot thick right and that's your wall it's extremely insulating they they are extremely efficient to cool and to heat they are extremely durable once assembled and put together assuming it's done properly um if I had a choice of being in a normal home or a log home during a storm, I would take the log home just about any day. Um, they can be expensive. When you read these kit prices, you know, pre-made kit prices, there's so many things not included in there. That's basically the, the frame of the house. Um, windows not included generally. Uh, appliances, flooring, interior uh, components. Uh, a lot of times that may not even include things like shingling for the roof Labor, not included. Um, sometimes transportation is included, but it's like a ridiculous, like first 10 miles of shipping included. You know? So you have to look at all these things when you evaluate the cost of them. They generally sell for more. When you sell, uh, you know, once it's built and you just decide, I don't want to, I want to sell this to somebody else, they generally sell at a premium over a house for all of those reasons. They look good. They're extremely durable. They'll be there. They're taken care of. They'll be there a hundred years from now. No doubt. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to them. But again, um, you state that this will be a hunting cabin and a possible bug out location. If you're, if you guys have been smart during your service, you have lots of money and you can do this thing for cash and, uh, you're still gonna be able to buy a house and you're gonna, you know, financially be stable and you, you guys have a plan for what you're gonna do income wise other than just military retirement or you're just gonna draw military retirement, all the numbers work, fine. But I would be more inclined to tell you to go ahead and do this if you were building it to live in. If you're building it as a fallback location and you're not going to be there that often, there's more cost-effective ways to build a fallback location, especially if you're going to be residing in Idaho. right? So the the odds that you'll need to fall back to that are less than the odds that I would need to fall back from where I'm at in Arlington, Texas to to my homestead up in Arkansas. Way less. Because you're already in a somewhat insulated, probably... uh, When people ask me where's the best place I could go... Idaho's on the top of the list if you're willing to live that far, you know, kind of out there. And if I had my druthers and my wife would allow me to move further from our, uh, you know, our immediate family down here, I would probably be somewhere up in that Montana, Idaho area. I love the Bitter Roots of Montana, for example. Uh, there's a piece of my soul that lives in the Bitter Roots, and if I want that piece of my soul, I have to go there to reconnect with it. It'll never, it'll never leave or come back, so... Since you're already in somewhat of an insulated area, maybe you should be looking at should you build a, a log cabin to live in and uh, build your fallback location as more of a, a less expensive option. It's up to you in the end. But as far as are they efficient, they're damn efficient energy-wise. Uh, are they are they strong, stable, etc.? I mean, they're like a fort. If you think about it, when they used to build jails... It, like, you know, impromptu jails in little towns and cities back there in the settling of the West. They built them out of railroad ties. And they were, you know, unbelievably strong and, and people didn't get out of them. Um, when you build a log cabin, it's not that much different as far as the construction methodology. Um, so, big fan of log cabins. I'd love to own slash live in one someday. Again, it's going to come down to your finances, though. Again, thank you both for your service. Let's take another question. Anybody that's built one, been through this, chime in today and uh, comment in the comments section on the show notes. Here's a great question um, on food preservation. Travis says, uh, if you had to start from scratch, which food preservation equipment would you purchase? Our borrowed water bath canner finally needs to be returned to my wife's aunt. Uh, we use the water bath canner for jams, sauces, tomato sauce, and pickles. Are steam canned canners dangerous? Great shows. Thanks, Jack. Um, Travis, first of all, steam canners are not dangerous. And if I'm going to buy canning equipment and I had nothing to start with, I would buy a pressure canner, and I'll tell you why. If I buy a pressure canner, I have a great big pot. And if I set the lid on it and I don't seal it, I have a great big pot with a lid on top of it. And if I buy a rack and put it in the bottom and fill it a little way up... I have a steam canner. If I lock the lid down and, and, and follow pressurized canning methodology, I have a pressure canner. So by buying one, I effectively have both. So that's, I mean, if you could buy one thing that fills two rolls, then that's what you would buy. Is it going to cost more? Yes, but with pressure canning, I can expand my canning to things that are not in high acid content, uh, like, let's say, green beans. You do not want a hot water bath can green beans uh because you won't get the temperatures high enough to kill all the pathogens uh that are necessary to make sure that it's safe. If you do it with tomatoes because of the acid content of the tomatoes being so high or you're making pickles and all the acid from the vinegar if you were making pickled beans for instance, you could water bath can it. But if you want to can things like beans uh and a lot of other vegetables, carrots, uh things like that, you're going to want to go with a pressure canner. No, they're not dangerous. It's a, it's a myth and it's a myth founded like most things in fact. In the old days, the pressure canners that were out there, some were good, some were bad. The stuff that's made today is all really, really good. I do not like the pressure canners, though, with a rubber seal that the lids you know, lock down and you go two ways and twist them. I like the ones that have the butterflies and they're metal-to-metal seals. You pull them up and you screw them down. Not because they're safer, because they're less of a pain in the ass to seal. It's, It's that simple. Um, you got to think, with, with liability lawsuits today, no company's putting out a pressure canner that's a bomb. Because one lawsuit could cost the company their entire existence. Uh, so they're all pretty dad-gone good quality today. But to the spirit of your question, if you said you have no method of preserving food, what would you do first? Well, the first thing I would do is I would teach myself to make jerky and biltong, uh, without any equipment whatsoever. Being more fair to your question, though, when you say, well, what would I invest in first? I would buy a dehydrator before anything else. I would buy a dehydrator first, and I would buy a pressure canner second, and I don't think I would buy much else. I use my grill, my side box stuff for smoking. If I want a bigger smokehouse, which I do when we move, I will b- construct one and build one from stone. Um, those are the only two food preservation tools. The other thing I would invest in is a good vacuum sealer, a good quality vacuum sealer, and I have learned the hard way over and over from using lower-end tools that spending three, $400 on a good industrial quality uh, vacuum sealer is probably the way to go if you can afford it. Because I've had food savers, I thought, this thing's wonderful, it's worked for two years, and then just, boom, it just stops working. It just craps out. And when I invested in a good one, it was the smartest thing that I ever did. So those are the three big ones. Dehydrator, vacuum sealer, pressure canner. And I would probably put, I can't tell you the priority order. If you like to can, you might even move the canner to the very first one. I would almost always say go dehydration first. Easier, since it's easier and more convenient, you're more likely to use it. But it depends on what you're preserving, what you grow, what you can acquire. I mean, if you're doing things like, if you grow a lot, like I grow tons of peppers. Tons and tons of sweet peppers, hot peppers, uh, m- you know, mildly hot peppers, you name it. Well, canning peppers is great, but it's a lot of work. And you kind of kind of save up till you have a bunch of peppers. Where I can go out, this afternoon I'll go out there, I'll pick probably 20 peppers. I'll use two or three this week to eat now. I'll chop the rest up, and if it's one tray in the, in the dehydrator, put it in there and turn it on, it's not really a big deal. And if tomorrow I go out there and realize there's a lot more than I thought, and I want to throw another tray in there, and I just keep tossing them into my aluminum, my, you know, my metal paint cans and throwing an, uh, uh, an O2 absorber in with them, label them, I use a little P-touch to do my labeling, bam, right into the pantry. And you know store a couple boxes up, and next time we go to Arkansas next month, I'll take another case of them up there. And, I mean, to me, that's easier. So that's why I like dehydration better. Canning, though, there's certain things that just... I don't like dehydrated green beans. I don't care who does it. I don't care what they say. They just don't have that green bean-like texture ever again. It just doesn't work out. Um, I'm not a huge fan of dehydrated broccoli unless it's being used in something like a casserole or a stew. But for any other use, I'd rather can broccoli or flash freeze it. Uh, So there you go. Best I can do with that. Dehydrator is my primary, pressure canner would be my next step, uh, and a vacuum sealer. Those three are so close. Those would be my priorities to getting your, your own ability to, uh, to preserve food. I would also consider investing in some of the phenelically lined paint cans and some O2 absorbers. Um, I am really pleased with how well that works and how simple that is. The phenelically lined ones are gold lined. They're a little bit more expensive, but they're FDA approved for food storage. If that still bothers you, get a food grade plastic bag. Don't even worry about sealing it up, you know, but put your food inside the bag, inside the can to prevent contact with the service. But I've been using it directly. I don't notice any off taste or flavors or anything like that in the food. And again, these are food approved for storage. So um, there you go. Let's go ahead and take another question. Here's another article um, that, that got sent in by a lot of people. Um, just like the... Uh, the alarmism about the uh, the lead shot ban came in from a lot of people. This came in from a lot of people. Um, so I'm going to read it, because when I get it from a lot of people, I know that it's on, if, if 100 people send me something, there's probably 1,000 people that it's on your mind. And this one may be more than 1,000 people that it's on your mind, because it's out there, and anybody that pays attention to what's going on has probably heard some stuff about it. And the headline on Yahoo News is, Massive solar storm to hit Earth in 2012 with the force of One." Hundred million bombs. That sounds scary, doesn't it? I'll talk about that more in a second. Don't panic, okay? But I am going to give you the story of what's going on. Melbourne, Australia, August 26th. Astronomers are predicting that a massive solar storm, much bigger and potential than the one that caused the spectacular light shows on Earth earlier this month, is to strike our planet on 2012 with a force of 100 million hydrogen bombs. Ooh. Several U.S. media outlets have reported that NASA was warning uh, that the massive solar flare this month was just a precursor to a new massive solar storm building uh, that had the potential to wipe out the entire planet's power grid. Despite its rebuttal, NASA has been watching out for this storm since 2006, and reports from the U.S. this week claim the storms could hit uh, that most Hollywood disaster dates 2012. Similar storms back in 1859 and 1921 caused worldwide chaos, wiping out telegraph wires on a massive scale. The 2012 storm has the potential to do even, to be even more disruptive. The general consensus among general astronomers, and certainly solar astronomers, is that the coming solar maximum, 2012, but possibly later into 2013, uh, will be the most violent in 100 years. News.com.au quoted astronomy lecturer and columnist David Renake as saying, "...a bold statement and one taken seriously by those it will affect most, namely airline companies, communication companies, and anyone working with modern GPS systems. They can even trip circuit breakers and knock out orbiting satellites, as has already been done this year," added Renake. No one really knows the effect of the 2012-2013 Solar Max will have on today's digital-reliant society." Dr. Richard Fisher, director of NASA's Hello Physics Division, told Renanke the, st- the superstorm would hit like a bolt of lightning, causing catastrophic consequences for the world's health emergency services, and national security, and less precautions are taking. NASA said that a recent report by the National Academy of Sciences found that if a similar storm occurred today, it could cause $1 to $2 trillion in damages in society's high-tech infrastructure and require 4 to 10 years to complete recovery. The reason for the concern comes as the sun encounters a phase known as Solar Cycle 24, Most experts agree, although those who put dates on the Solar Max in 2012 are getting the most press. They claim satellites will be aged by 50 years, rendering GPS even more useless than ever. And the blast will have equivalent energy of 100 million hydrogen bombs. We know it is coming, but we don't know how bad it is going to be. Systems will just not work. The flares change the magnetic field on Earth, and it's rapid, just like a lightning bolt. That's the solar effect he added. The findings are published in the most recent issue of Australian Science A&I. I'll put a link to this article, but I just read you the entire thing because I wanted to give you it all because I'm going to say some mitigating things now, and I didn't want anybody to think I was hiding anything. Um, First of all, let's start out with 100 million hydrogen bombs. These numbers get thrown around as raw energy equivalents, and we talk about how many the equivalent of hydrogen bombs released when something like Mount St. Helens erupted. Okay. And I don't remember what it was, but it was like a hundred or something like that. Yet, if you dropped a hundred hydrogen bombs in that area of Washington, it would have completely wiped out the northern part of the state. It would have irradiated everything and that just didn't happen because when energy is released, it's not just that it's released and it's raw, released and it's raw, raw numbers, it's where it goes. Right, so, in the case of a volcano, very, very destructive, very, very dangerous, a lot of damage potential, but most of the damage becomes from lahars, which are the flowing hot boiling mud. Uh, it comes from the pyroclastic flows, and it comes from the ash and, and it's not the initial right that that's the immediate vicinity, even though there might be a thousand hydrogen bombs or ten thousand hydrogen bombs when one volcano goes off this hundred million hydrogen bombs. that energy is not going to hit the earth and blow it up. It's going to channel through our atmosphere. This happens all the time. So numbers like that are sensational because even scientists want their crap read. Please don't forget that. The threat is real, and the threat is more likely the effect with what they're talking about of having satellite communications disrupted and financial damage and damage to the economy. Don't feel very like, okay, well, everything's going to be okay now because obviously we've seen what happens when the economy gets damaged. And I want to throw something at you. I want you to think about this. I've been saying false recovery for a long time, and I've been saying double-dip recession for a long time. Going into 2012... Uh, we're going to have a president trying to get reelected. that's going to be doing everything they can to fudge and make the economy look better with a public relations campaign. Not because he's a Democrat, not because it's Barack Obama, because he wants his job back. And if it was, uh, you know, if, if John McCain was in office, he'd be doing it too. I'm just, this is a fact. And they'll spend any amount of money they can get away with, the... Bloodletting will have already been done. The Republicans that will come into power, and a lot of them are going to take new seats in this November, are going to want to stay there. It's not good for them if the economy's bad, because it's going to be the blame game back and forth. A lot of the stimulus money still hasn't been spent. It all gets poured in toward the end, 2011. Big PR campaign. Stock market gets pushed up because... Of the PR campaign, not because of the fundamentals underneath, and I end up being right, and we're looking at what it looks like at the beginning of a recovery. It's all fake. It's all bullshit. We get a big solar storm, and it does two trillion dollars worth of financial damage, and it's going to take four to ten years to recover. And that is if we spend the two to four trillion dollars or two trillion dollars to fix it. What does it do to that weakened economy rate then? When I think we're already ha- so, this could be a bigger economic catastrophe for us as individuals, than just having our lights go out. Now the other side. In 1859, whatever it was referenced here, the 1800 storm, it was 1859, definitely. Telegraph wires burned to the ground. They caught on fire. Uh, They were certainly not the high-voltage lines that we have running around, running our electrical distribution systems today. If you could fry a telegraph line, you know those big steel, high-tension wires you see transmitting gobs and gobs of power? Imagine what you can do to that. There's a couple things we need to prepare for. We need to prepare for science telling uh, industry, hey, you know what? This is really bad. Shut the damn transformers down a day in advance, and they might have to shut down some of the electrical system. And it still could be damaged to a large degree. We need to prepare for temporary and long-term outages uh, with these storms. Not because it's 2012. I call that coincidence. You can call it whatever you want. I think it's actually more likely that we'll see the bulk of this stuff in 2013. And just like the article says, people are saying 2012 because it gets more attention. Because Hollywood's all up in arms about this and, and what have you. We need to be prepared for this always. To think that we, just because we can time certain events on the Sun... That the sun will never just do something like this on its own, you know, w- without a lot of warning. There is always the potential for this. I've talked about this a lot in the past. This is one of those natural disasters that can be anything from knocking down a few satellites to shutting off the grid completely and anything in between. So make sure you're taking your preparation seriously. I talk a lot about the day to day stuff and being prepared to lose a job and living debt free and understanding that there's a lot of hope out there. There's a lot of hope, and there's a lot of danger. This is an example of a real danger that no government agency can fix. We can't build a shield for this. Maybe someday we can. Right now, don't have it, can't pull it off, don't have the technology. Right? Because you're rich, you don't avoid this. You're poor, you don't avoid this. You live in one part of the world or another part of the world, you don't avoid this. No matter where you live today, even if you're highly independent of technology, odds are that a lot of the supplies that come into to where you live, uh, unless you're like you know a self-sufficient hermit in the mountains, are not independent of technology. This is a global catastrophe as far as its potential. It's probably not going to live up to that. Be prepared anyway. This is serious. There is no doubt about that. Um, and those of you that are like the 2012 true believers, let go. 2012 is nothing but a date. The Mayan calendar is nothing but a calendar that ended on that date because it was based on a series of events that stopped then. It is no more earth-shattering that the Mayan calendar ends on December 21st, 2012 than it is that your calendar ends on December 31st every year because your calendar is based on the orbit of the Earth around the Sun and the Mayan calendar is based on the alignment of the planets and the orbit of the planets in the galaxy, or the orbit of the galaxy itself, basically, and all the bodies within the galaxy and how they work out. And it's, it's called uh, the planetary, or the, uh, the, the, the alignment. This happens about every 26,000 years. It could be wrong, give or take a year or two. Our Earth is over 4 billion years old. Happened a lot of times, a ton of times. And it doesn't coincide with the dinosaurs going extinct or any of the other crap that you hear about. All it comes down to is the fact that we're always in precarious situations. There's always danger, and we always need to be prepared. Let's see if I got time for one more here. Here's an interesting question. Um, Question for Jack. Extended family compounds. This comes from James. James says, Great shows lately. Particularly impressed with the amount of work you've been uh, st- staging for your vacations. Way to take care of listeners, man. Quick question. I got a call from my older brother, fellow prepper, who's been considering buying some land in Texas. Uh, about 20 acres in particular. And... Um, He's open. He's going to open it up to extended family to build on in Homestead. His heart's in the right place. He sees bad things coming and wants to create a space for family to prepare before they happen rather than after the fact. He'd keep the land in his name, but the family would otherwise have run of their selected area for free. As someone with a law degree, though, I have serious concerns for him, including the concept of uh, adverse possession in which he'd risk losing title to the land. There's some other potential legal liabilities as well. As if those things weren't bad enough, as much as I love them, some of my extended family are less than dependable people. I wonder if you've encountered this idea before and had any thoughts to add. I have a a huge amount of concerns here. The the easy answer from a legal standpoint would be to lease the land to them for like a dollar a year or something like that. Um, and, And that at least takes away some of the legal, not all, but some of the legal issues. Here's a bunch of problems, though. Number one, I don't know how big extended family is, but it sounds like more than two or three people. And 20 acres is not that big of a piece of land to bring in, you know, cousins and brothers and uncles and second cousins and aunts and sons-in-laws and daughters-in-laws. And when you bring people, they tend to bring more. I mean, that's the thing. Like, you open it up to your brother-in-law, well, he's gonna bring, you know, his, his, your sister, his wife with him and their kids, but, you know, maybe her brother now I'm kind of scared I want to so as you start doing that it's not that like you said the heart's in the right place but how much property you need to be able to do this effectively another legal concern here is if you're gonna divide 20 acres let's say up into uh, 21 acre areas um, all of a sudden you have something that looks like a subdivision and from a video I watched this weekend, of the guy that created the first earth earthships out in New Mexico and the legal hassles and the millions of dollars it cost him. Here's what this guy did. He bought 600 acres said if you want to build an earthship here come here the land's free. Take a place, start building and we'll help you with consulting, but you do all the work. What could be wrong with that? Well, apparently it started to look like a subdivision. The local government went after him. He lost his architectural license for a long time. He finally got it back. Um, he had to spend millions of dollars and put in a mass. he had to put in, get this, the guy had to put in phone, electric, roads, sewer. Even though the houses provided their own electric for solar, their own water from rain catch, their own sewer systems, the, the houses were completely self-sufficient. That's why they call them an earthship. He had to put the infrastructure in anyway because it was a subdivision. He needs to be very careful that he's not creating a subdivision. And exactly what homesteading means, um, I'm sorry, I think this is a bad idea. I really do. I think that if, if you really feel, like this guy really feels he has to do this, then what you do is you buy the land, you break it up into sublots, and you offer it for sale to your family at a very, very reasonable price. So if land in the area is going for $10,000 an acre, you sell it to them for $1,000 an acre, all, all legal-like, deed it and all, and you write it off as a loss. Or you don't do it. I'm fine with people working together. I'm fine with people getting into groups. When you start to create hassles for one landowner because of another person existing there and that person doesn't really have any legal requirement or restrictions or anything, no obligations, it will cause rifts in families and you know if the whole world falls apart, maybe it was a good idea, but odds are the whole world doesn't fall apart and maybe it tears a family apart. you got to be careful with this stuff. All the group stuff, like I said, it has its place. But individuals need to have—I don't care if they're all adjacent—they need to have responsibility and ownership for anything that they're going to use. And you know, if you have like you know a patriot scenario where everybody's going to live in the same house together in some kind of a disaster, I mean that's fine, but it's probably not ideal. Maybe it's all you can come up with. But in a scenario like this, if this guy, this guy just sounds like he has some money, he's willing to do some things to help. And here's the interesting thing. Odds are if he said, okay, I'm going to buy 20 acres, I'm going to keep five for myself, I'm going to make 15 available to family, probably two or three family members would actually take him up on the offer. And that way the people that want to take him up on the offer are actually active participants that are actively going to do something and uh, again I just think it's a disaster waiting to happen done any other way with that I'm going to go ahead and wrap up today folks I'm going to apologize I feel like my timing was off a little bit today I don't know what it is I guess it was uh, a vacation one show and then I had this this weekend all weekend I was at this open camp thing talking to web people and technology and I'm tired but tried to bring it for you on episode 500 do the best I can I'll be back tomorrow we'll be talking about some interesting things this week uh, and uh, building up to that call in Friday again I've worked off the backlog of calls so calling in eight. 866 think again, Eight six six sixty five. think you'll probably hear yourself next Friday if you do that this week. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.